HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Top Chef Champion Melissa King. In this episode, we'll talk to Melissa about forging your own path in the food world, what it takes to be a TV chef, and we'll hear Melissa's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia's success is easy to take for granted. After all, we know all the things she accomplished, that she's revered by professionals and home cooks alike, and that she left a lasting legacy. But if you go back to her youth, Julia was, let's face it, a directionless misfit. She was the least likely person to become a television star, too tall, not pretty enough, with a rather odd voice. No casting director today would put her forward. But Julia's journey, learning to cook with skill in France and getting mastering the art of French cooking not only right, but published, all led to one thing, confidence. Her conviction that Americans needed to learn to cook and better appreciate good food gave her the confidence to stand in front of a television camera and motivate us to get into the kitchen. Someone who also doesn't fit the classic image of a chef, but who shares Julia's cooking confidence and conviction that her point of view has as much to offer as anyone else's is Chef Melissa King. We met Melissa when she joined an all-female reunion panel of Top Chef winners during Cherry Bomb's Julia Jubilee. 
These chefs' collective achievement truly represent Julia's legacy today. A standout fan favorite from multiple seasons of Bravo's Top Chef, Melissa has been recognized as one of the best female chefs in San Francisco. She served as a judge on the recent Top Chef Season 18 Portland and the new Top Chef Amateurs airing this summer. Melissa won Bravo's Top Chef All-Stars Los Angeles Season 17 and received its fan favorite award. A final on Top Chef Boston Season 12, she holds the record for most challenge wins in the show's history. Raised in Los Angeles's San Gabriel Valley, the child of Chinese immigrants, she earned a BA at UC Irvine, graduated from the Culinary Institute of America, and is a certified level one sommelier. She served at the helm of several San Francisco Michelin-starred kitchens for acclaimed names like Dominique Crenn and Ron Siegel. Currently exercising her entrepreneurial muscles, Melissa has launched both King's Sauce, a small batch sauce and spice line, and an apparel line, while also offering virtual cooking classes. Beyond her 15 years of experience as a professional chef, Melissa is an advocate for Asian American and queer causes. Notably, she donated 100% of her Top Chef fan favorite $10,000 prize to Asian Americans for Equality, Asian Youth Center, The Trevor Project, and National Black Justice Coalition. She was even honored as a celebrity grand marshal for San Francisco Pride and is modeled for Levi's and Gap campaigns celebrating diversity and advocacy. Melissa joins us today to talk about how she's forging her own path in an ever-changing food landscape and navigating being a TV chef. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Thanks for having me here today. Our pleasure. How are you? Good, good. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to talk to you, so we'll get going. So I wanted to start with, you know, on this show and because of our Julia relationship, we've talked to lots of veteran chefs in the kind of Julia sphere, meaning people who've been sort of long in their career and maybe worked with Julia, but you really represent a next generation. So I wanted to ask you, and particularly as an Asian American and queer woman, were there challenges you faced in professional kitchens or did you really feel like things had changed a lot by the time you, you got into the, the, the profession? Um, I've certainly faced a lot of challenges throughout my career. Um, when I started in the industry, this was 20 years ago, maybe more. And I would say most of my challenges were because I was a woman, really, um, aside from, you know, being Asian and queer. Um, I think at the time, you know, these very testosterone driven kitchens, a lot of men and having to sort of prove yourself um, was something that I had to do. And um, I remember, you know, many moments uh, within my career where I was told I wouldn't be able to make it or I wasn't strong enough. And I had to sort of prove that to to others. And did did it, I assume, as I just thematically started on confidence, <laughs> I assume that was quite confidence shaking that you really had to find from within if your colleagues were not being particularly encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it takes a shot at your confidence. It makes you question, you know, whether or not you really can succeed. And I remember there was a specific incident where I was working for a male executive chef and 
I was the only woman in this kitchen. And at one point in time, he pulled me into the office, lectured me for a good hour about how, oh, you should probably leave the industry. This is too tough for a woman. Um, You should focus on being a housewife and just quit the industry altogether. I don't think you're going to make it. And I was like, are you really having this conversation with me right now? Like you're not pulling any of the any of the men into the kitchen uh, for for this same conversation. So um, that was a moment. It was such a like key moment of my career where I felt, you know what, I'm going to prove that I can do this. And I don't care what anybody says. I'm just going to continue to believe in myself, continue to push forward. Um, because I had known, you know, from a very early age that this was what I wanted to do with my life. And so I think the, the key thing that I took away from that was to continue to believe in myself and to never give up. Yeah, I was going to say, and you're, I don't know, I can't even count the number of female chefs or cooks that we've had on who've been basically told that same thing. And not just maybe this isn't for you, but literally like you should be a housewife, which is such in contrast (laughs) because anyone even venturing into cooking school is probably not the person who's interested in that, that role, um, at least as a Or why why can't you have, why can't you have both? You know, I don't, it it just seems so, such a... um, interesting question just to pose to the women in in the kitchens rather than everyone uh, to to question that, you know, whether or not you want to have a family. Um, So to me, it didn't matter what my gender was. It was more about showing whether or not I was um, capable enough to continue pursuing this industry. Um, So yeah, I'm very proud of myself and where I've I've landed today. No, I think, and as you should be, because anyone facing an industry that is so determined to tell you you don't belong. And I think it's interesting that you point out the. I think you're saying the biggest hurdle for me, despite ticking several minority boxes, was that you were a woman. It was your gender more than actually other things that was considered out of place in a professional kitchen. And this is not even 19, we're not talking about 1970 even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, if anything, being queer, I felt in a sense protected me in a kitchen because there were moments where, uh, you know, I, I had grown up in kitchens and, and my life with very long hair, it was much more feminine appearing from the outward appearance. And I remember feeling what it's like to feel straight and be catcalled in a kitchen and to be harassed. And the second you know, uh, uh, the second my coworkers found out I was a lesbian or that I was gay, all of a sudden I was one of the boys <laughs> and all of a sudden it switched. And there was this sort of double, double standard because, um, you know, the other women in the kitchen were being harassed daily. And so it was very interesting to see how um, being queer in a sense protected me from those type of situations, especially when I cut my hair off, it was like all of a sudden I wasn't getting catcalled at all anymore. (laughs) But it wasn't fair, you know, to the other women in the kitchen um, to see the type of treatments that were were happening to them. Yeah. And it's that I mean, that's kind of both understandable and fascinating at the same time that there's such some kind of just how did professional restaurant kitchen culture become about kind of a toxic masculinity and that that mm-hmm. was just so baked into even younger people who'd recently come up as much as someone who started cooking in the 50s. It's like kind mm-hmm. of 
crazy. Um, but and clearly, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, you know, I think we are moving in a better place um, by calling out those behaviors. And I hope that, yeah, I hope someday we just move to a place where that's not even an issue anymore, where we're not thinking about uh, what gender you are or um, what your sexual orientation is um, or, or the color of your skin. Um, to, you know, end of the day, it's like, can you cook? <laughs> and that's really all I care about. <laughs> Well, I do. I'm ho- hopeful and optimistic that just the next, we were talking about next generation, which you're sort of, you know, maybe the senior side of the next generation, but that, given your 20 years experience, that younger people just tolerate that kind of thing and are not going to tolerate that at work, whether it's in a professional restaurant kitchen or at Google or um that target. So I'm hopeful that just this idea that younger people don't feel they need to be treated badly to, you know, excel at work is just going to slowly just change the culture of work. I hope. Mm-hmm. I do think now, you know, there's so much um, support for speaking out for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that is what's changing the culture. And, um, amplifying our voices, our stories. And so there are people listening. And um, I do I do feel hopeful that it's going to um, change the industry in a better direction. I do too. So let's talk about um, you and your career. And I was just curious, I mean, this is sort of an obvious question, but I guess I'm asking not did it, but how? Is you've been on Top Chef multiple seasons. Now you're returning as a judge in different iterations. So how how did that change your career aspirations? I'm assuming maybe you didn't have anything super specific, but you were essentially a restaurant kitchen chef before. You've done all this Top mm-hmm. Chef, and how how has that changed your perspective on on your career? It was funny because growing up. Uh, my goals felt very simple. It was like, okay, I'm going to work my way through a kitchen from the bottom up, become an executive chef, and hopefully own a restaurant someday. And that was the goal. Um, Own one restaurant, become a Michelin star chef, um, and be happy. But then I pursued other things like private chefing before Top Chef. Um, And then once Top Chef happened, it it opened my eyes to so much more um, that the industry could be something greater and it can, and the influence I can have can go beyond just the walls of a restaurant. Um, I remember receiving so many messages from people, just strangers, you know, on Instagram, emails being sent to me saying, you know what? I saw your story. I'm an Asian American. I'm a queer person. I'm trying to come out to my family and hearing your story resonated with me and gave me strength. And those stories from strangers are what keeps me going. I feel like it makes me realize there's so much more I can do here. Um, I can continue to speak out, use my voice. I can find other ways to um, be fulfilled in the industry and not have it be you know, where I'm tied down necessarily to a restaurant. Um, So I've been really enjoying this path and this direction of um, 
just exploring other avenues uh, because there, there, as I've said again and again, is there, there are so many other ways to find success within the culinary industry. Um, it does, and it doesn't have to stop at just owning a restaurant. Well, that, no, that's very well said and really helpful. I, I will pick up on that, but I, I wanted to stick on what you were saying mm-hmm. about the messages from other Asian Americans who might be queer or people who are queer, and not Asian American. And, and, um, I hadn't been focused on that, but thank you for sharing that because I think it is still as much as it is way more common these days, particularly in places like San Francisco or New York, it is still hard in different cultures, whether American culture or Asian culture, as a young person to come out and um, having those examples in the media, in the mainstream media is is, is so helpful and important. But I also I wanted to that. switch... Go ahead. Did you want to say I, something? I was just about to say, like, representation is so important in the media. And I remember at a young age watching Julia Child on TV, and I was um, maybe five or six. And that that was around the time where I wanted to pursue being a chef, where I just kind of knew. And it, a lot had to do with watching Julia on screen and seeing the only woman, uh, you know, doing what I love most. And so I felt this connection to her. And I feel nowadays you see such a wide range of representation in the culinary space. Um, and it's, it's powerful, you know, it's really powerful for the younger generation to see that they can, um, you know, there's someone out there like them doing what they love, following their dreams and that they can achieve that as well. And I think, well, I know there's a little bit of hot water brewing over this season's champion. I think to be fair to Bravo and to Top Chef, for the most part, they've done a lot to try to um, encourage diversity. I mean, right down to having Padma as one of the founding uh, judges. So I think that that's been, uh, I think, a great help to aspiring chefs. I, w- I would want to take a moment and just ask you, you know, certainly you've been a vocal advocate and even fundraiser and donor t- um, to fight anti-Asian hate. But then I'm also struck by, you know, I read Eater and look at these things. There's like all this, or at least there was before the pandemic, really exploding interest all over the country in different Asian cuisines and Asian restaurants and lots of the new places were different types of Asian food. And for you as an Asian American woman, do do you feel like it's been really difficult to reconcile? Like on the one hand, people are really interested in the food and the culture, but then, you know, spitting on people in the street. It's, you know, it's amazing to see how well-received Asian food is and like how much people love it. Um, But at the same time, it's disheartening to see the type of hate that's been going on. And, you know, the racism, the hate, that is nothing new to me, but it's new to a lot of people that have been hearing about it. And I'm at the same time glad that it's being called out and being pushed out into the light um, so that it is something that we can, uh, you know, focus on fixing or fix, on working on. Um, so I, yeah, I do feel torn um, because oftentimes the people that are doing this hate, they're probably going down to their local dim sum spot and, <laughs> you know, picking up noodles, you know, like after, after causing the attack. And so it's like, you know, I, 
they don't often love the people that are making the food. <laughs> um, and that's, that's the part that's disheartening. Well, and that really saddens me to hear you say, as a sort of younger generation who grew up in a much more multicultural Los Angeles, that mm -hmm. it's not new to you. And or in San Francisco, which in theory, you know, has a very large Asian American of all ilks community. So it's not like mm -hmm. a dominant, you know, we're white population. But maybe could you expand on that? Because I think for a mm -hmm. lot of people, I don't know, maybe this whole thing ultimately has a silver lining in that maybe the discrimination that a lot of Asian Americans were feeling, facing, having was more hidden, at least to other people, and now it's not? I do feel it was hidden. Um, like, as I mentioned, it was not a surprise to me that there's racism because it's happened to me throughout my whole life um, in several incidences growing up. Um, I was always aware of the color of my skin and my hair color and just my the differences um, in me. And I think that's the part of, you know, I, I am a minority within a minority. <laughs> you know, I'm an Asian woman, but I'm also a queer Asian woman. Uh, so I've, yeah, I've, I've faced it in my own life. And to see that it's all coming to light now, um, I do feel you know, there is strength there and there's strength to fight the racism and to hopefully stop it. Um, but the only way to do that is for all of us to speak up. And culturally, Asians, I feel, have been told to silence themselves. Like we just, culturally, we, we don't always speak out on our feelings. We suppress it. We kind of just like move on and it's not healthy. And I think speaking up, fighting back um, it is only going to do good. And also for the communities around us to also be aware of what's happening and, you know, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, be conscious of your neighbor and your friend, um, check in on them, see how they're feeling. Uh, there's, there's so much going on in the world, but I think these little actions can really build up and be something that um, over time can make some make a difference. Yeah, I mean, hopefully that the fact that it was hidden to a lot of people or 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 people who it was occurring to felt like, oh, if I don't make waves, it'll get better, which, of course, didn't really do do that ha has turned mm -hmm. a tide to to make it whatever seemed acceptable in secret or private or as an aside or when no one else is watching will will subside or be rethought mm -hmm. is there any other kind of message or thought in terms of people's you know who aren't asian in terms of their understanding about you know the rise of or maybe it's not even a rise the, the greater expression of anti a AA or API sentiment in the wake of COVID-19? I think, you know, a lot of people that are um, not in the community, they think that all of this is happening because of the pandemic. Um, but as mentioned, you know, this is something that has been going on for a very long time. And I think just being conscious of that and continuing to learn as much as you can about um, about 
the experience, or let me think here, continuing to, to learn as much as you can, educate yourself, ask questions, you know, don't be afraid to talk to your Asian friends um, and kind of get a little sneak peek of what's going on in their lives. I think um, the more you get curious, the more you can help, the more you're able to um, pay attention. It all just starts with listening. No, I think that's great. And I, I think I'll take a moment to also point out that while you're Chinese American, there's also the the umbrella of who's Asian American includes huge numbers of groups that are very disparate in their histories and cultures and viewpoints. And that that also, I think, is people need to kind of keep that conscious. But just your simple message of ask polite questions, ask your friends how they're feeling and thinking is, is a is a way to learn more about them. All right, after the break, we'll be back with more from Top Chef Melissa King about being a TV chef and judge. Stay with us. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. You may have noticed that we have a whole new look. We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic, and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of five or $10 a month? It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick. 
with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Top Chef champion Melissa King about how she's evolving her public platform. So, Melissa, in the in the first part of the show, we were talking a little bit about how being on TV has changed your, um, maybe not your career, but your view of what your career can be. And so I was curious to talk to you more about what your current professional plans are and what you're working on now and, and what you're planning to be. And it, it seems like you're getting into potentially staying on TV as well. Yeah, I'm, I've been really enjoying all the, just the other opportunities beyond a restaurant. Um, for me, you know, that fo- the, there's a focus on books right now, book opportunities, um, more television opportunities, virtual cooking classes or something that I started through the pandemic, but I feel will just continue. Um, I've just been having so much fun doing those. And I do see that there is a community of people that really enjoy, um, you know, cooking at home with me and cooking. I mean, the beauty of it is, it is I can reach people and they don't necessarily have to come to me. I can go to them just through uh, a virtual cooking class. And so um, just exploring all these other avenues have been very fun for me. And that's kind of the focus at the moment. I kind of feel like this, you know, just to bring it back to Julia, because that's what we do here, is she, through (laughs) television and books, really discovered her inner teacher. And I think she always knew it was there, even back to Paris when she was writing the book. But has that kind of happened to you, both from, you know, as much as TV gets criticized, particularly on any show that's about techniques and training and stuff like that, there's a teaching element. Did you, have you kind of Mm -hmm. discovered there's a, a natural teacher inside you through these things? Yes. Um, yeah, I did a little teaching prior to Top Chef and that whole part of my career, but um, I really dove into it a lot more through this COVID experience and starting up virtual cooking classes um, and also the judging experience from judging Top Chef Portland. Um, I started realizing there is a teacher within me and I do tend to analyze technique and I love offering feedback, especially to these contestants that are trying to win a competition. I'm like, I've been there. I know what they've been through. Um, I feel I can coach them from this position. And so um, I've been really just thoroughly enjoying diving into the teaching element of of my career. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I think um, the term judging maybe gets overapplied and maybe not seen by the public as much. Um, mm-hmm. Right. On most of these shows, not just Top Chef, but that's one obviously you're most familiar with, is the judges are also kind of in coaching roles. Is that right? A hundred percent. You know, Top Chef judging or any judging on any show, I feel you're more of a mentor and you're really helping to mentor these contestants throughout, you know, the contest. And um, 
a lot is providing the right feedback to their dishes that they're presenting you at that particular challenge um, in order to help them and help them grow and nurture them to the next so that they can survive the next challenge. And that was the perspective that I came from um, when I was judging Top Chef Portland. Well, let's reverse that. When you were being judged in Boston, did it feel like <laughs> that or not always? <gasps> Oh, it, it absolutely felt that way. I felt every time you stand in front of judges' table, in front of Padma, Tom, and Gail, you know it's going to be hours of just a lot of feedback, a lot of how could you have improved this dish, or what did they like about it, and what are you doing well? How can you keep focusing on those parts of what you're doing and carry that with you to the next challenge? Um, so yeah, I always took it as a mentorship every time that I stood in front of them and I tried to turn that around on, on the, on, on the, the next season when I became a judge, you know, how can I just continue to help, you know, nurture these people through the competition? And is what we see in the final edit, is that usually sh a, a shorter or truncated amount of feedback than the full feedback the contestants, the chef testants receive? Absolutely. Um, you know, keep in mind, this is a 45 minute television show with commercials and stuff. And so um, the real the real life situations, hours, you know, it's much longer. So there is a lot of things that are kind of edited down. And so you do see a shortcut version of what's of what the actual contestants are experiencing in the moment. Um, but I remember when I was going through competition, um, it was just so valuable, the, those hours in front of the judges and getting the, that feedback that you need to, to move forward. Well, that's nice to hear, especially when you watching you feel terrible for for the person who's getting the, the yeah no that is good to remember that they you get like five and, minutes of judges table <laughs> and you're like oh my god how crushing but i have to say i was struck by one thing that you have received a lot of praise and and especially for judges who, who like tom clicky or padma lakshmi who've been doing this for a really long time and really know their stuff and have been exposed <laughs> to so much they love your food and and given it high praise. But I was struck by that that kind of food is is restaurant kitchen food to an extent. It's hard to do in pre-prepared things like that. So I'm kind of thinking, oh, I really want to eat Melissa's food, but now she's like virtual <laughs> and doing products. So like, do you do you see yourself missing that? Do you think you will return to a restaurant kitchen? Or are you trying to find another way? Because obviously you have a lot to to offer in 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 as a chef. Sure. I mean, I do. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, and second of all, yeah, I, I do miss it. I do miss the high of a kitchen and having, you know, just a really crazy service. And, uh, you know, I think there's there's a part of me that does feel like I'm missing that. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, there's so many other ways to channel that energy into other areas where my food can be accessible. So I am focusing that towards uh, book opportunities at the moment and, um, again, virtual cooking classes to where people can at least taste that in the, in, for the time being. But I don't want to say I'll never have a restaurant because I never like to say never about anything. <laughs> I do feel... Mm. 
Um, a lot has to do with timing, uh, whether, you know, whether or not that opportunity hits at the right time. And so I'm never going to say never. <laughs> well, and it seems like from what you're doing now, there's a certain entrepreneurial nature to it. And, you know, but you don't see yourself being Tom Clickio or Danny Meyer developing lots of restaurant concepts. I'm again, never going to say never, <laughs> um, but not your I, focus. So, so it sounds like there's so, there's so many goals I want to achieve and I still feel young enough to hopefully have a long career path where I can still do all the things that I dream of. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to say never, <laughs> but it, it, so it sounds like you're alluding to, there might be a cookbook or some food type book within you coming out in the near future. It's going to take time, as we know cookbooks take years, <laughs> but yes, I'm, I'm working on something at the moment. And very, do you feel like, like you... new in the process, but we're getting there. Exciting. Well, everyone will, will wait with bated <laughs> breath to hear. But yes, I know they, yeah, they take so long. Um, take so long. Even fast, they take three years, like when you're in the planning, when you're in the mm -hmm. making, when you're in the releasing. And then if you have a pandemic, then there's a little bit exactly. of a Exactly. It's a little passion project that I, you know, I feel in my free time I've been able to work on. So um, we'll see where, how, how that develops. And it sounds like you're enjoying TV chef judging, too. And do you feel like that's something you would like to continue? Oh, I love it so much. And I didn't. I didn't know I would love it this much, I guess, <laughs> until actually going through it. Um, but I realize, you know, there there is so much I have to offer and um, especially to the people that are competing. And so I, I felt very validated in my Top Chef experience and having that opportunity to judge. So moving forward, yeah, if there are more opportunities to continue to continue nurturing that skill, um, I'll, I'll definitely say yes to it. Well, and I love the reminder that you gave that that's very Julia about judging in, in this context is a lot about mentoring. And I think that that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right. After the break, we're going to hear Melissa's Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, you can tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. Don't forget to register to join the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, me and Julia's great-nephew, Alex Prudhomme, in conversation with directors Julie Cohen and Betsy West, the Oscar-nominated filmmakers of RBG, for our celebration of Julia's birthday and the new Imagine Entertainment and Sony Pictures Classics documentary about Julia's life and legacy. You can participate from wherever you'll be on August 15th. Go to sbce.events to sign up. It's free with a donation to our nonprofit partner, Community Health Centers of the Central Coast. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Melissa, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> 
<laughs> I had several Julia moments. Um, it all started when I was really young, I would say under the age of 10, watching Julia child cooking shows instead of cartoons. And that <laughs> really influenced and molded um, the direction of my career and wanting to be a chef and, you know, kind of seeing that representation on screen was incredible. Um, then later in life around, I think I was age 17 was my first job at the Getty Museum. I was a pastry assistant and I had an opportunity to make Julia Child's uh, a part of her birthday cake. <laughs> and it was just the oh. profiteroles that were on top of the cake. And this was I would say maybe four or five years before she passed. Um, but that really? was such an honor. Even though I didn't get an opportunity to meet her, but I just felt so excited to like glue these profiteroles to the cake <laughs> <laughs> with sugar. <laughs> um, but to this day, I still remember that full cir circle moment. Um, and then it happened a little bit later on Top Chef. I think it was my first season where I had an opportunity to... Um, make a dish that was inspired by Julia. And then the guest chef of the day was Jacques Pepin. And so that was just such an incredible experience because, again, back to when I was a kid, I would watch Julia and Jacques all day long <laughs> after school. Um, so it was, there was just so many moments throughout my career where Julia um, just inspired me. Well, I love that, too, that and I, I think we try to encourage people too that Julia moments come in many form and fa fashion. And it's almost like I'm starting to feel like I'll have to coin some new phrase like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon that um, <laughs> even even people who've told us we really haven't, you know, we don't have a Julia connection. It didn't come up. Da, 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 da. There's no reflection. Often it doesn't come from them. It comes from the folks we're talking to before the show. And then. I'm almost always able to be like, yeah, but your mentor is this person who did all this stuff with Julia. And it's just kind of amazing how, you know, her influence was great enough in her career long enough that these things uh, flow together. And I love that you, um, many Getty Center connections, right, to, to Chef Jim Dodge, who I don't know if you've ever met, is one of our advisors mm -hmm. and the chair of the jury and who, you know, ran the, the or oversaw the food operation through Bon Appetit Management at the Getty Center for a yeah. long time. Well, that's lovely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Melissa. Of course. Thank you for having me. Our absolute pleasure. We are excited to see what next things you'll be doing. <laughs> and thanks everyone for listening. For more, it's at Chef Melissa King on Instagram and Twitter. And her website is ChefMelissaKing.com, where you can find her apparel. You can purchase the I Am Human shirt, which raises money for Stop Appy Hate. Go to crowdcast.io for her virtual cooking classes. As always, follow the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The latest on the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, don't forget to register for August 15th, is on spce.events and you can follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, 
with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>